scripture reading this morning comes from Matthew 24, beginning in verse 15. This is the word of the Lord. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation, such as not has been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And in those days, and if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So, if they say to you, Look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, Look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with the power of the great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. May God bless the reading of his word. Thank you, Glenn. <clears throat> well, from the uh, earliest time of our lives, we've had to learn what it means to wait, haven't we? We're always learning lessons. Uh, even as children, we're, we're always waiting, right? You have to wait till dinner before you can have um, more chocolate milk. Uh, you, you have to wait till dinner till you have dessert. Uh, those are constants in our home, but you may remember even as a child the waiting uh, for Christmas morning. I remember walking down the stairs just hoping maybe my parents were wrong and it was today. And I would look and see no presents were under the tree and I would have to wait some more, if you will. Uh, later in life, for those of you who are married now, you might remember that, that period of time of engagement. 
and the waiting uh, for that marriage and that wedding day and all that comes with it. Uh, you had to wait. Um, others, uh, or after that, you, you think about the waiting process of, of children. You're, you're waiting, are, are we pregnant? And if we are, then we've got nine months. And, and, and all that anticipation, even if you haven't been married or, or had children, uh, you experience this, maybe waiting for a call back on a job you've applied for, or, or maybe you went in to get a medical exam and you're anxiously waiting for results. Um, we've all had that experience, right? And after some time, sometimes if the waiting is too long, what happens? Well, we lose patience, right? We lose patience, and when we lose patience, we often lose interest, and maybe we lose hope. Oh, I haven't heard anything, so I guess it's not going to happen, right? We've all been there, regardless if we're children or we're adults, uh, and so we are worried sometimes that as we're waiting, are we waiting just to have our hearts be disappointed? Well, it's true in this life that we will have our hearts disappointed. There will be things that we're waiting for, and we've all experienced, and they never come, right? There's times that our, we have our hearts set on something, and it doesn't come about. Well, here in the Scriptures, we're reminded, though, that as Christians, we have a hope that will not disappoint. We are waiting for something, uh, the blessed hope, in fact, the scripture is saying. We are waiting for the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, and we are told that the waiting, the patience, endurance will not end in shame. It will not end in disappointment. Nevertheless, we've been waiting for a long time, haven't we? We've been waiting as, well, for each of us, our entire lives, but we're waiting as other Christians have waited and waited and waited. And now we are now 2,000 years waiting for this hope to be realized. And, and it would be tempting to say, yeah, this isn't happening. We've waited long enough and have our hope dissipate, right? To lose interest, to lose hope that this is ever going to happen. This is why the Apostle Peter writes to the church, churches of, of Galatia and, and modern-day Turkey, and he writes by way of reminder in 2 Peter 3, and he, and he tells them, you need to remember uh, the predictions of the holy prophets. You need to remember the commandments of our Lord, which have come through the apostles concerning this promise of his coming. And he reminds them, didn't Jesus tell you that in the latter days, scoffers will come and say, where is the promise? They were already like, all right, it's been long enough. It's been a few decades. Where are you at, Jesus? And, and here we are two millennia later. Scoffers are going to come and say, where is the promise of his coming? But Peter reminds us and says, hey, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, but he's patient to you, to us, to his church, to his elect, not willing that any would perish, but that all would reach repentance. Peter reminds us that the Lord is still doing a work of saving his people throughout the whole world, and until that is done, persevere. Don't lose hope. Don't buy into the scoffing. And so it's tempting for us, isn't it? It's tempting for us, I think, um, to look at the promises of Christ, the promises of his second coming, and to lose hope. 
that this will ever come about. In fact, I don't think we even talk about the second coming often anymore. We're maybe allergic to over-talk of the second coming, and so we now do no talk of the second coming. And so for this reason, I'm glad the Lord has us in Matthew 24 and 25. And, and this morning, I want to put before us four reasons why we must eagerly anticipate our blessed hope. What is that blessed hope? It's the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so first of all, we must eagerly anticipate the second coming because the trouble of this world will be severe. The trouble of this world will be severe. Brothers and sisters, our ultimate hope must not be put in a world that is passing away. And this is what we will do if we do not look forward to the blessed hope. If we aren't looking forward to the return of Christ, guess where you'll put your hope? You'll put your hope in the things of this world. And Jesus has told us time and time again, those things have disappointment already built in. They're temporary. They fade. Even the moth come in and destroy. Uh, I, I, every winter this happens. I pull out my sweaters and I put them on. I go to the, 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 the mirror and then I see the shirt shining through because there's two little holes there. You know why? Because little moths have put seeds in my sweaters, I guess, right now, and then they are feasting on them right about the time that I need to wear them, and I find that this sweater that I got at the end of the winter at Christmas, I can't wear anymore because it's got a, a big stinking hole in it. Jesus says, yeah, it's built in. Corruption, moth, and rust will destroy, and so we can't put our hope in the things of this world which are passing away. Well, last Sunday where we saw was that and I argued what is that in verses 1 through 14 that Jesus presents the entire period of time from his first coming to his second coming as a time of great trouble, of tribulation, you might call it, of turmoil here in this world. And yet, despite the turmoil that is going to characterize this world, and he says it's like labor pains, that they, they're like contractions, they come in waves, and they build in intensity. All these things are going to come. But he says the end is not yet. Yet, despite all the trouble that we will face in this world, the gospel of this kingdom, you saw in verse 14, will be proclaimed throughout the whole world. The church is going to be built. The gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. But in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, Jesus tells us elsewhere. I have overcome the world. And so last Sunday, what we saw, if you were with us, if you weren't, I encourage you, it's on YouTube. We're going to be in this text for about six weeks, Matthew 24 and 25. But last week, Jesus gave us a bird's eye view of world history of this time period before his first and second coming to show us what will occur and characterize this world until he returns. Yet with giving this bird's eye view of history, he now in verse 15 gives us a worm's eye view of one specific event of great trouble. And here Jesus begins to talk about the destruction 
of the temple. Now, you remember, this is the whole context for this teaching section. Jesus has come out of the temple, ended his time of, uh, of running out the, the money changers. He has pronounced woes upon the religious leaders, and he has told them, your house is left to you desolate. And as they're leaving the temple, the disciples are ooing and awing at the great building. And we looked at that last Sunday, and Jesus is just Debbie Downer here. He comes in, yeah, you see all these, this building? Not one stone is going to be left upon the other. What? This thing's going to be taken down. And so the, the disciples, in verse 3, what do they ask? They say, tell us, Jesus, when will these things be? What things? The destruction of the temple. And what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And so you remember, there's two questions that Jesus is answering in this chapter. When will the temple be destroyed? And what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And it's in this point, verse 15, where things get difficult. I told you they were coming. It gets difficult to understand what exactly Jesus is trying to to say because Christians throughout the entirety of the 2,000 plus years that the church has existed have struggled to understand this passage and I'm not going to be exempt at struggling to preach this passage to you this morning this has been very difficult how do we fit what Jesus says in this passage and fit it with the fact that it's 2,000 years later that's the big problem because as you read it, it sounds like this is all going to happen relatively in, the, in a short amount of time. He tells us it's going to take longer in the other passages, but it, at this first part, you see in verse 29, after these things, you're thinking the destruction of the temple, immediately after the tribulation of those days, and then you've got the undoing of the earth and the return of Christ. Well, the temple's been destroyed. That's a very generous interpretation of immediately, right? What do we do with that? Or... This generation will not pass away until all these things, pass, these things take place. Well, guess what? The disciples are all dead. That generation has passed. No one's alive. So how do we handle these texts? Well, some have been shaken by these things. This has been one of those, you might say, problem passages, unapologetic. And some have been shaken and they say, Jesus just was wrong. Jesus was mistaken. He thought he was the Messiah. He thought this was how it was going to work. And he's just like all the other frauds we've seen. They thought there was going to be this great battle. They die. They promise they're coming back. And they never do. He's just like all the rest. They're scoffers, if you will. Where is the promise of his coming? Come on, guys. I sat in a college class at the University of Kentucky, and that was exactly what one of the professors was doing. And Christians keep saying, oh, he's coming back. Well, it's been 2,000 years. He's not coming back. They're scoffers. Well, certainly we can't go there. And so what are some other solutions? Well, others have concluded that verses 29 through 35, where we have immediately after those days, are, are more symbolic, if you will. The language is apocalyptic. That's the, uh, the, the theological term, if you will, to describe in symbolic terms um, the coming of Jesus in judgment through the Roman Empire. And so this isn't talking about, some would say, uh, the second coming, but this is Rome ransacking uh, Jerusalem. And, and, and some of you might think, well, that sounds crazy. It's, it's plausible. 
you think about the book of Revelation, uses lots of, of apocalyptic, symbolic language, and, and some think maybe that's what Jesus is doing here to just describe what it will be on that great, terrible day of judgment. You actually see Isaiah talk like this when Babylon will come and destroy Israel. It uses very similar language. And they're just saying it's picking up Old Testament verbiage to signal you're, you're going down. That's basically what some people say. So you don't have the return of Christ in this text we're awaiting him later, and they would say that comes in verse 36. Then there's others that want to say, no, 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 no. When Jesus talks about here the temple, he's not talking about the temple of his day. He's talking about a future temple. And so you see what one group says, no, we're keeping it in the historical context of the temple now or in Jesus' time. And then there's others, and I would say this is... is, is has been popularized probably um, by, if you've read the Left Behind series, those who would be of that persuasion are saying, no, this is in the future, a future event that's going to take place where the Antichrist is going to set himself up in the temple, and, and since there's no temple, we're awaiting this temple to be built. Again, not implausible. Many Christians have held these views, trying to figure out how do we fit this with our experience. Well, just full disclosure, I don't find any of these solutions satisfying on, on my side. And I'm not like coming up with some random view. There's others, and I'm going to present a, a different view, who, who want to have our cake and eat it too. We want to say, yeah, Jesus is talking about the temple right in front of him, but he's doing it in such a way that it anticipates the end of the age. Okay? So I'm going to try to help us see that. And, and here's my encouragement to you. Be good Bereans. And this is one of the things where we would categorize these elements in the third tier of doctrine where, hey, Christians are just going to have good disagreement, and it's okay. It's okay. We all are going, and even the things I'm going to bring you, even if you don't think, ah, oh, I don't see how that fits, that's okay. The overall thrust is still the same, okay? So I told you I would tell you when things are fighting matters and when things are not, this is not one of them. So but I'm happy to talk afterwards, all right? So there's my uh, little disclaimer. Let's, let's get in. And where I, what I think is happening here is that Jesus is talking about the temple. I don't think there's any way to get around it. That's the context. The disciples are pointing at these things. Jesus says, do you see these buildings? They're not going to stand. Okay, Jesus, when's this going to happen? I don't think you can just say, oh, he's talking about some other temple in the future that they have no idea about. I think you have to be rooted in this immediate context. However, Jesus, as Jesus talks here about this abomination of desolation, the destruction of the temple, which will occur in AD 70, this catastrophe that is going to happen, I think, looks forward to a great time of trouble that will ultimately come upon the people of God at the end of the age. So are you rightly confused now? You rightly just like, what in the world is going on? Well, let me try to unravel it as clearly as I can. Jesus has been presented to us as the great prophet. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than Elijah. He's greater than Jeremiah. And here, just as he's pronounced woes upon Jerusalem and the people just like a prophet, so I think he's still giving us prophetic word here. He's being presented as a prophet, the great prophet who was to come. And we're given a hint here in verse 15 that, that there's more than meets the eye 
with what he's saying. Look, look in verse 15. He says, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Did you catch that little side comment? That's not in Daniel, let the reader understand. That's a side comment that either Matthew is putting here or Jesus said, okay? Let the reader understand. Whenever you hear, let the reader understand, or let him who has ears, let him hear, or let him who has eyes, let him see. That's an invitation that there's more than meets the eye. I'm inviting you to think more deeply about this. And Jesus is pointing us back to the book of Daniel. Now, I don't have time to preach the whole book of Daniel to you this morning, so you're just going to have to trust me. Um, and these might be things of, of debate as well. But this is an invitation to think deeply about the prophetic mysteries of Daniel and how they will be fulfilled. And if you remember, Daniel has, is full of mysteries, in particular, that there would be a succession of kingdoms that would come uh, and, and would be part of God's plan. They were in Babylon. And then there's the prophecy that the Medo-Persian army is going to come and destroy Babylon and they're going to bring you out of Babylon and you're going to be restored to your land. But then Greece is going to come and destroy the Medo-Persians. And then after that, Rome is going to come. Now, it doesn't explicitly call out each of those nations, but they're presented in, in apocalyptic language like beasts that come out, some with bears and some with lions and some like dragons, and they're going to come and they're ferocious. And what we learn is they are succession of kingdoms that are bringing you up to this great time of trouble. That phrase, abomination of desolation, comes out of Daniel. It's used four times. And this phrase was particularly same grammar coming out of chapter 12, verse 11, which we read earlier in the service. And it's used in Daniel to speak of a blasphemous event that is going to take place in the temple of God and spark a season of great tribulation and trouble for the people of God. Now what's very interesting is that this initial abomination of desolations was fulfilled in 167 B.C. If you've studied Daniel, everybody mentions Antiochus Epiphanes IV who came in and he slaughtered pigs in the temple and he offered sacrifices to Zeus. And then he broke out a great persecution against the Jewish people. They would literally, any baby that was circumcised, they would smash on the rocks. It was a terrible, horrific season of judgment that came upon Israel in time of trouble. But what's interesting here is now Jesus says that that event in the past anticipates another event. The destruction of the temple now by Rome, which is the fourth beast in, in uh, Daniel. And so this helps us understand, well, okay, we're to get in our train of thought in the book of Daniel. How does Daniel work? Well, in particular, Daniel is revealing the mysteries of God. What are mysteries? I wrote my entire dissertation on this. One word, okay? And I'm going to give you in one sentence. Mysteries are events in the past which anticipate fulfillment in the future. It's how we see even the prophecies of Christ. Daniel speaks of being like a man with dogs on either side. He sees his bones. Not any of them are broken. Psalm 22 is talking about Dan David's troubles in his life, but it anticipates the cross. The same thing has happened. Uh, um, you think a virgin will conceive and bear a child, Isaiah 7 says. And that 
happened in the days of Ahaz. It was a near fulfillment, but then we know it as Mary. Oh, it had a greater fulfillment. I think Jesus is trying to get us in that frame of mind. There is an event coming, and it's in the train of thought of the events that Daniel has, uh, has told us about, and I'm telling you there's another fulfillment. And I think he's signaling, and this also is characteristic of the wars and rumors of wars, the kingdoms which arise against each other, as he already said in, in chapter or earlier in verse 7. This is just another example of it. Luke tells us, if you want to just note this in chapter 21, verse 20, this is Luke's account of this passage. He doesn't call it the abomination of desolations. He says when... He records Jesus as saying, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you know that the desolation has come near. Luke um, records other words of Jesus to help us interpret this. Oh, this is when the armies of Rome come around the city. You know, he's saying this is like what Antiochus did. And so for this reason, what does Jesus say? You better run. He's talking to his immediate disciples and, 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 and anyone who will hear. You better run. Flee to the mountains for safety. He says, you don't, when you see this event, when you see the armies coming around the hill, surrounding the great city, the holy place, you don't even have time if you're on your roof. Now, your roof was like a deck in those days. That was where you have stairs on the outside and you go up and that was your deck. You're not going to have time to go down your steps, grab your stuff and run. You're just going to have to jump off the roof and run. If you're in the field, don't even bother to go get your cloak. You need to run. And he goes, and poor women who are pregnant and are nursing in these days. Can you imagine? I mean, I've had dreams. When you have kids, you have maybe these crazy dreams where you're running from some sort of person after you and then your kids can't keep up. It's horrible. And Jesus say it will be like that. Women trying to get, they're not going to make it. Many of them won't. And he also says, he's talking in Jewish terms here because this would have affected them and, and pray it's not winter or on a Sabbath. Of course, you don't want it to be winter. Winter makes it harder. Sabbath, many people's conscience, oh, we can't run. We want to honor the Lord. We, it's the Sabbath and they're going to feel conflicted. And Jesus says, you better pray it's not on the Sabbath. Jesus says it's going to be horrible. And then Jesus says something head-scratching. Verse 21, then there will be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. This is where it gets tricky. Okay, Jesus, it seems like you're talking about the temple and all these, and then all of a sudden, this is a global catastrophe. Do you see the change? This is apparently going to be so bad that no human is even going to live through this if the days weren't cut short. And that's where you have the problem. Is he talking about the temple now or is this some future event? I think just like the prophets of old, you find them moving almost seamlessly about near fulfillments and far fulfillments. And if you just read Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, they do it all the time. I think Jesus is doing something very similar. And so it seems that now that Jesus is is referring to A.D. 70. And this event also looks forward to even more terrible trouble to come. Another example of this, just Sodom and Gomorrah. Throughout Scripture, Sodom and Gomorrah is a pattern, an example of the great day of judgment to come. It was a local manifestation that, you look at Jude, 
Jude looks back and talks about it'll be like that. Even Revelation begins to uh, fire and sulfur. All these things, well, Sodom was an example of that. And so these prior judgments anticipate the climactic judgment. That's how I think the judgments work. Some people say, is COVID a judgment of God? Everything's a, uh, a, a, a beginning judgment, if you will. Death, all suffering, the groanings of this world, hurricanes, tornadoes, all this, in some sense, are anticipatory of the undoing of creation. Everything is, including the destruction of the temple. There's going to be horrific wars. And this is going to fulfill Jesus' purposes until he comes. And so, for this reason, brothers and sisters, we need to be eager, anticipating Christ's return because the trouble of this world is going to be severe. And other Christians have experienced this. I think about those Christians in Iran when Muslims are coming in, the terrorists are coming in, and they are marking Christian homes and where are they flee into the mountains. Same things are happening. The same things happen in North Korea. Same things happen for the church in China. And they're hiding. And when the, Rome, and when the armies come, you know you've got to flee. We haven't had to experience that. But most Christians throughout history have had moments like this. It will be a severe time where the people of God are always on the run. Not only that, we need to be anticipatory of Christ coming because the spirit of Antichrist will be strong. We're going to continue in this text. Jesus says, things are going to get bad. <laughs> That's what Jesus is saying. And the result is there will be false Christ and false prophets that arise. Jesus already said that, right? Again, this is, another, this is an example of what he said in verses 1 through 14, where there will be false Christ leading many astray, verse um, 5. And then there will be false prophets, verse 11. Well, now he just couples it. He says, then if anyone says to you, look, there is, or here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. Why? There's going to be people who say, I'm the Savior to solve this situation. And some of are even going to, in, in some sense, claim to be the Messiah, the long-awaited one. And this was true leading up to the events of AD 70. I mentioned one of them where some zealots came in and took over the temple and made it like their base of operations to fight the Romans. They weren't the savior. They were the, they were the, 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 uh, the instigator of the Romans coming in and destroying them. Jesus says, don't believe these people. They're going to come. And it's going to be true throughout the whole age. I, I brought us to you know, David Koresh in Waco. This is exactly what he said. There's going to be a great war, and we're going to fight this war. And then right before it's all over, God's going to show that I'm the Messiah. And so people are saying, there he is out in the desert. And that compound, and people believed it. And it's happening all over the world. And it's been happening all over the time. I want you to see that Paul anticipates this in the future. Go to uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to be flipping around a little bit today. Because I want you to see that the apostles also interpret this. I think this is why there is a future dynamic. But there, Paul is, is almost verbatim borrowing the structure of Matthew 24 here. And Paul says, um, Paul too, like Jesus, warns us not to think that the day of the Lord has come, the Messiah has come. He says, 
verse 1 of 2 Thessalonians 2. Now concerning the coming of our Lord and our being gathered again to him, uh, don't be quickly shaken. Verse 3 is where I want. Let no one deceive you in any way. Sounds just like Jesus. Let no one deceive you about false Christs and lead you astray. It says, for that day, Paul says, will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Okay, oh, now we have a abomination of desolations type thing. One who stands in the holy place where he ought not to stand. But Paul seems to be, as we're going to see, seeing this is, he calls them the man of lawlessness. Jesus calls them false Christs. Paul says the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Do you see that, verse 7? It says, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. What, what does that mean? Already you're seeing men of lawlessness, false Christs appearing and these will lead climactically just like these judgments now we're talking about a person there's all types of antichrists out there but they're leading up to the climactic expression of him if you will who will fulfill this in a, in a greater way john puts it this way this is very interesting 1 John 2, 18, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Do you see that? Are you tracking? I know we're in deep, heavy waters today, right? Lots of variables to keep in, in check. John says, we have heard the Antichrist. The Antichrist is coming. But I tell you, even now, many are here. What is he saying? Then the Antichrist, and they are leading to the Antichrist. Paul calls it the mystery of lawlessness. Now, coming back to Matthew, flip back to Matthew. I want you to see how Jesus puts this. Jesus says in verse 24, For false Christs and false prophets will arise, performing great signs and wonders. What? So to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Now, notice that great word of hope, if possible. But don't let that mean that you take the grace of God for granted in your life. Yes, he is the one who holds us fast to the end, but he is, Jesus says, I have told you beforehand. It is his warning and you heeding his warning that keeps you, so that it is not possible that they would lead you astray. But the point is, if you do not heed, if you do not take close, you won't show yourself not to be among his elect. And you be swept away because the delusion is going to be so strong. It's going to be so strong. It's why in the latter days many will fall away, Jesus says. Paul says in the Spirit explicitly, he says in the latter days many will devote themselves to the doctrines of demons. It's not that they come claiming, hey, I'm a doctrine of demons. You want to come follow me? No, they always present themselves as Christianity. So you must be on guard. These false Christs are men of lawlessness. That's Paul's term. Antichrist, that's John's term. Who lead up to the ultimate false Christ, the ultimate man of lawlessness, the ultimate Antichrist who declares himself to be God. And Jesus said this destruction that they're going to lead, this, this corruption is going to be so horrendous that they're going to try to stamp out the people of God. 
And they would be successful if the days were not cut short. Now, Satan doesn't know the time or the hour either. I want you to think about it. He doesn't know the time or the hour either, so he always has his counterfeit Antichrist ready. One who is leading this charge, this rebellion against the people of God, seeking to gather the nations to make war against the people of God and lead this great rebellion. And I think the picture, if we were to put everything together, is that we're going to find ourselves, the church, globally um, under the persecution of the nations. It's going to deceive the nations to make war on the saints. That's what the beast does in Revelation. The beast is another antichrist who represents the world. And I, th I think the picture is, you know it's interesting at the end of Revelation, you know what song they sing? When deliverance comes, the song of Moses. Why? It's another past event which anticipates a future. Our deliverance is going to be like that of Israel coming out of Egypt. We're in Egypt. Every Christian around the globe is in Egypt. And we're going to be running from Pharaoh. And it's going to look hopeless. We're going to be on the edge of the Red Sea, and we're going to turn, and you're going to look at your pastors and say, hey, guys, this isn't working out well. Where have you been leading us? It was a lot better when we had meat pots. And you're going to be looking back to your old life. This stinks. Christianity stinks. I have more trouble now than before I was a Christian. And you're forgetting all the graces and the mercies. And you're looking, you're complaining, and it's going to look like I have led you out into the wilderness to die. But at the last moment, the Shekinah glory of the Lord is going to appear. It's going to usher in and block them. And, the, and the, it won't be the seas that part. It's going to be the sky that parts. And we're going to walk right through as the sky comes crashing down on God's enemies. This is why Jesus says, when I come, it's going to be evident. So if they say, here he is, and, and it's going to be persuasive at times. There he is. Look, he's out in the wilderness. He says, do not go. Verse 27, for as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. What's Jesus saying? Everyone can see lightning. You're not going to be like, oh, he's somewhere in, in, the, you know, in, in the eastern part of the world. We've got to go make a, a, a homage to go meet the Messiah. No. It's going to be evident. But notice what he says at the end. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. There's a word of judgment here, and I want you to see Revelation expounds upon that. Go to Revelation 19. Revelation 19, verse 19. Keep in mind where the corpse is, the vultures will gather, okay? And try to keep all the little names and stuff in, 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 in view here. Revelation, last book of the Bible, almost the end of the book. Revelation 19, verse 19. John says, And I saw the beast, there's the Antichrist, and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who is seated on the horse and against his army. Who's the, the one seated on the horse and his army? Jesus is the one seated on the horse. Who's his army? Well, I'm in the Lord's army, right? We've sung it as kids, right? 
And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet. Christ called him false Christ and false prophet. Here it is. Who was in its presence and had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword. Now look. That came from the mouth of him who was seated on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Where the corpse is, the vultures gather. You see that? That's how it's going to end. You aren't going to miss it. You're either part of the Lord's army or you are the meal for the vultures. That's how it's going to end. And so, brothers and sisters, we cannot lose heart, can we? We cannot lose interest in the coming of Christ, but must eagerly await his return because the trouble of this world will be severe and the spirit of Antichrist will be strong. But here's good news. The deliverance of Christ will be glorious. And we're going to, this is less technical. Jesus says that immediately after the tribulation of those days, verse 29, we're back in Matthew. Matthew 24, 29. Okay, if we've got this sense of, okay, the tribulation that characterizes this age, those days, which right now have lasted 2,000 years, immediately after this is done, now we get to the the undoing of the earth. The sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. There's their second answer. The second question. When will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming? Uh, when the heavens start falling apart, <laughs> and you see me in the sky like lightning. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Why? Because the day of judgment has come. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet. Do, 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 do. I don't know how it'll go. A loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds. There it is, the parting of the Red Sea. It'll be the parting of the winds. Calling his elect up from one end of heaven to the other. A far greater exodus to come. Far greater exodus. While the church is on the run with nowhere to hide, and it does feel like, I was talking with somebody just the other day, just some of the troubles that we're even experiencing in our own country, the increase in lawlessness, just kind of, where, where would you go that this isn't happening? And this wise brother said, there's nowhere else left to go. It's getting that way. I think that can be, there's nowhere left for Christians to hide. And it's going to look like we're weak. It does look like we're weak. We are, aren't we? It's going to look like the church is about to lose, just like it looked like Jesus lost on the cross. But that moment of greatest suffering will be our greatest victory. Not because it's ours, because it is in the Lord's hands, right? And so like Daniel, who anticipated Jesus coming with the clouds, as Luke said, as he went up in the clouds, so he will return all the peoples of the earth will see him and those who aren't in Christ will know they're doomed but for us we'll be raptured up right that's what he's talking about there in verse 31 Paul says the same thing in 1 Thessalonians 4 at the sound of the trumpet of God the dead in Christ will rise first then we who are alive will join them in the air 
Paul just expands upon that a little bit. 1 Corinthians 15, he talks about it in resurrection terms. At the last trumpet will be changed with the twinkling of an eye. The dead will be raised and perishable, and death will be no more for us. Amen? Notice it's interesting if you look at Matthew 24 in this text, 1 Thessalonians 4, and 1 Corinthians 15. Guess what you'll find? At the last trumpet will be changed, caught up, end all the same event at least that's how I read it and so church don't lose hope in Christ's coming hold fast in eager anticipation knowing that your hope's not going to be disappointed it's going to be glorious it's going to be glorious and then finally and this is where we'll close Jesus concludes here with a mini parable just a mini parable about a fig tree and he says, just as a fig tree begins to produce its leaves, becomes tender, and it begins to produce its leaves, you know, they would have known, oh, summer's near. That's, I guess when figs bore their fruit. And Jesus says, so it will be with the coming of the Son of Man. What's he saying? When you begin to see these things taking place, wars, rumors of wars, famines and pestilence, kingdoms rising against kingdom, many falling away, Antichrist galore, false prophets, the gospel going to the ends of the earth. No, these, are, these aren't the end, but they are the signs that I am near. I'm standing at the very gates. Christians have understood the nearness of the Lord uh, is his imminence. He's near. It's, it's on the verge. And, and what I would say is that everything that Jesus says needed to take place in some form has taken place. And that's what he means. This generation will not pass away until all these things take place. History is cyclical. And it's like waves of birth pains. And all these things occurred in some form between when Jesus is speaking this in AD 70. And Jesus is telling them, I've told you beforehand so that you would know. And now, guess what? We see similar things happening all over the world. And we're experiencing them. And we can see ourselves, oh, we are like the people of God in those days. It hasn't been an AD 70 for us, but it is coming. Maybe we'll die before then. and We'll just get resurrected when this thing all is over. <laughs> I'd prefer Jesus to show up couple minutes that'd be cool with you guys let me finish this sermon um, but notice what he says heaven and earth will pass away but my words will not pass away we want to anticipate his coming because the promises of Christ will be kept as you see the world falling apart just remember this is exactly what Jesus said that's what you need to remember this is exactly what Jesus said oh I'm seeing people fall away from the faith it should grieve us but this is exactly what Jesus said Oh, it's going to be deceptive. Oh, it is going to be hard to navigate. What is the truth? This is exactly what Jesus said. Oh, there's wars. There's rumors of wars. What's happening? What's the UN doing? All those things. Yeah. Shouldn't surprise us. This is what Jesus said would happen. So what do we do? Well, we're going to close, and this is my teaser for next week. Jesus has given us a characteristic of what this is going to look like. What do the leaves that are coming and sprouting on that fig tree look like? But verse 36, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Look at verse 44. Therefore, you must be ready. Why? For the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. 
Yes, you'll be able to read the signs. You'll be able to see the leaves. But you don't know where we are. It seems really bad. It might be worse. We don't know where we are. But we know he's near. And he's keeping his promises. And he says, be ready. Because you aren't going to expect it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, we do want to be ready. And Lord, I confess it is sometimes so easy to get entangled with the things of this world, to put our hope in the things of this world, to find our happiness, our fulfillment, even as we see moth and rust destroy. Maybe thieves have even broken in and, and stole our dearest possessions. But Lord, you have told us beforehand that this is what would happen. So Lord, let us prepare our hearts and be ready. And Lord, now as we get ready to take the Lord's Supper together, Lord, that is one way you tell us to be ready. To remember the gospel, remember that past event of redemption. And it anticipates your glorious return. And so we eat and drink, proclaiming your death until your return. Lord, let us hold fast and renew our commitment to you as your commitment remains stable and fast until the end. And we pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's stand as we sing and prepare for the Lord's Supper.